You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Deke Hager. This is the WFHB local news for Monday, July 10th, 2023. Later in the program, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a wrap-up of the primary election and looks forward to November for the general election in the city of Bloomington. More in today's feature report. When people don't have a home base, they don't have access to mental health care, they don't have access to prescriptions, they don't have access to the things that we absolutely take for granted. Also coming up in the next half hour, Tori Crow from Beacon on the plight of the unhoused in Bloomington. Beacon operates the Shalom Center Homeless Shelter, and right now they are short on volunteers. Learn how you can help later on in the show on a new episode of Activate. But first, your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Election Board meeting on July 6th, a new board member, Judith Benkart, introduced herself and explained she is replacing Republican Chair Member Donovan Garlitz. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Judith Binkert. I was appointed by uh, the Monroe County Republican chairman to replace um, Donovan Garlitz, who had uh, submitted his resignation. I was subsequently sworn in by our illustrious clerk, uh, Brown, and am here today to uh, get things started. Following Binkert's appointment to the board, board member David Henry proposed that they move up the Democratic presidency for the board by six months. Garlitz had previously been president of the board, and given that Binkart is new to the election board, it would give her time to get acquainted with the board before being put in the role of president. The uh, proposal is to amend our uh, policy that we adopted in 2017 on the rotation of the chair of the, or the president of the board uh, to move the um, the Democratic presidency up six months to starting today, uh, really just to give you a chance to warm up. Uh, <laughs> as we're already in, in 90 days out from the uh, early voting in October, we have a lot on our plate. Um, I, I wanted to maybe extend the option to uh, have an opportunity to, to uh, have some thought leadership uh, to get us through this uh, election cycle, and then we'll revisit the calendar in January to reset. Um, so that was the, the spirit of the proposal, um, and to go ahead and move the Democratic presidency up six months that would have begun on January 1st. County Clerk Nicole Brown explained that there is a precedent that when there is a new member, they arrange the president's term to give the new member time to ease into the role as a board member. Brown also welcomed Benkart to the board. I have no discussion. There is a precedent on from both parties for that to happen when a new member comes on. And um, just like, as Chairman Henry said, to um, make sure that they have a chance to kind of to ease into the water and not just jump jump right in. And so uh, first, um, I also want to say welcome. Well, thank you very much. Welcome so much. I was not here when uh, board member Garland uh, left. Um, we will certainly miss the contributions that he made to the Monroe County Election Board and wish him well going forward. But we welcome you and we know that you will do an amazing job. Um, I got to see you on a number of occasions in your previous job. Um, you were very kind to the clerk's office and always willing to work with my office. And so it's lovely to see you today. 
The board voted unanimously to approve the amendment that would allow board member Henry to serve as board president six months early. Chief Deputy Clerk Tricia Martin asked when Henry's position as president would expire. Brown responded. So he was effective now, and then he would have been on there for 2024 as chair. So he will just run through the end of 2024 when it would revert back to the Republican chair. So give me the dates exactly. From today until December 31st at 11.59-2024. Later, the board discussed establishing a vote center study committee. Henry shared background information on vote centers in the county. Moving on, uh, the uh, section C of new business is the discussion on the establishment of a vote center study committee. Um, I'll go ahead and open up discussion on this as it was an item that I had asked to be added. Uh, This board in a previous iteration in 2011 had considered the idea of opening up our uh, vote system in our county to having vote centers where a uh, member of the public who is a registered vote could vote at any of those locations in the county regardless of precinct uh, for the purposes of uh, counting and their ballot in the election. Um, There are some good cost benefit to that activity. Um, and since 2011, when the board last considered it, um, we, we now have two thirds of the counties in the state of Indiana, uh, 60 of them, that have adopted this mode of conducting ballot um, through vote centers. Um, that includes, of course, the unanimous consent of all 60 of those counties' election boards, the, both parties, and the respective clerks in those counties that sit on those boards. And so I, I think given what we even just heard from Clerk Brown from the, the clerk's conference um, about the challenge we're facing about getting um, good uh, election day workers, uh, every cycle it goes by where it's getting harder and harder to find those workers that um, are willing to do the effort uh, despite months of recruiting by both parties, um, that it's worth revisiting. And uh, secondly, I guess as uh, the word got out that we were going to be discussing it, I, I was encouraged by the vote of the county commissioners and the support of county counselors on the matter. However, um, our work is to make sure it's a bipartisan decision and not just one that is a, a, a partisan one from elected officials, but in fact, a bipartisan one. And so um, I wanted to at least raise the idea of uh, setting up a vote center study committee uh, 12 years after we tried in the past, and to see if we could um, do this in a bipartisan way that uh, reflects the concerns and questions of all parties, including uh, independents and libertarians in our community, uh, to see if this is a viable option and join the 60 other counties in the state that already do this. So that was the initial idea here. And I'm kind of curious, at least from the other members of the board, initial thoughts or concerns or questions about the pursuit of that um, uh, effort again. Brown commented that study committees can unnecessarily draw out the length of the discussion. Henry responded he thinks the study is important to ensure the decision on vote centers is bipartisan. When I hear the word study committee, and I I, I won't discount the validity, I feel as though it's kind of a way to kick the can down the road. So I, I guess I would want to know, did you have thoughts as far as Uh, parameters, how long are we going to study this? Because you don't want whomever the next clerk is in 11 years to say, I remember when they studied back in 2023. Um, Do you have a time limit? Do you have suggestions on who would serve on this committee? I don't Um, mean names. Yeah, I think think today is the initial conversation. Uh, I I think we would have to pass a, a, a 
a, a statement or a policy statement that says what those parameters would be. And, that's, and we need to have that discussion in a public space. So uh, happy to do it. Um, what we know from the Secretary of State's office, uh, and, and it's really the past three Secretaries of State that have had this as a uh, publicly available process on the state's website, is that the use of a study committee or group of people that figure out how it would work in their county is really the third step in, in their their seven-step process that they've outlined, right? The first step being, you know, does your executive legislative body and the commissioners agree? You know, does your county council agree? And, and we, we have that, at least by resolution from the county commissioners and, and discussion with county council. So we're already kind of in that third step in the seven-step process that the Secretary of State's office has outlined. Now, the, 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 you're right. The style of the thing is, it could be a concern. So, yeah, I do believe, first of all, um, whatever we would vote on should have a, a bit of a constraint that there is a product due out from that body at a certain point, uh, a report, a, uh, a findings that can be voted on and considered. So, yeah, I don't think this goes on for years. This is something that uh, needs a certain amount of time to get done. Um, the secondly, in terms of its composition, um, I wasn't living in the area the last time we did this. I know, um, I, I believe some folks in the room may have been on staff the last time we investigated this as a county, but uh, there were some serious concerns from our community about the bipartisan makeup of who was deciding this. And um, I would offer that whatever we come up with should very much match the way that we do redistricting in the county, where you'd have two members of each party seated, uh, nominated by the respective chairs, uh, appointed by the clerk, uh, at minimum, I think that we should have some independent voices on that body, um, and uh, you know, in, in honoring the uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the really legacy of Randy Paul on these issues, uh, making sure maybe there's even a libertarian voice at that table too, and a green mm. voice, right? So I, I think we need to make sure we have a good, balanced, bipartisan discussion. I, I mean, it should be equal representation from the the parties that have an interest. Um, those are some broad outlines. Uh, so I, if we, if I were to say like next meeting we'd bring forward the the motions that would give the uh, duration, the mandate, the charter, what it's investigating, who the composition of the thing that we'd vote on that and then move forward from there. Brown shared that she is in support of vote centers, but explained her concern with vote centers being regarded as an option to save money. That does make sense. And the only other thing, um, just in terms of getting this ball going forward, um, I've made no secret of the fact that I would be in favor of vote centers in Monroe County. That continues to be the case. Of course, that is the only decision where um, the election board actually has to be unanimous. But I also, and I'm only speaking for myself as the current clerk of Monroe County, I also get nervous when people talk about cost savings. Um, there can be some cost savings, but for example, um, I can recall that previous election board and party chairs were concerned that we would be disenfranchising uh, voters if we went to vote centers because in some counties, they reduce the number of polling sites. That is not what I am comfortable with here in Monroe County. And in fact, I'm more likely um, to go with the Marion County model where when Myla Eldridge was clerk, she did not reduce the number of polling sites. She just made every polling site a vote center. So I believe they have like more than 600 polling sites in Marion County. All 600 were vote centers. So that, so it's not, I don't want to um, 
leave the impression that, oh my gosh, you know, we could run an election on $2. That is, that is never going to be true. Um, and I actually, especially because I know there have been some discussions about not disenfranchising our rural Monroe County voters, I would want to increase the number. So if we had 34 polling sites now, I'm actually open to increasing it to 40 and just making all of them vote centers. Does that make sense? So I, I will mention that the Monroe County Board of Elections will establish a vote setter study committee. Its composition, uh, duration, and charter uh, will be determined by a separate resolution at the next meeting of this board. The board unanimously voted to establish a vote center study commission. They will discuss further details about the commission at their next meeting on August 3rd. The board will also meet on July 13th to discuss the potential candidacy of Joseph Davis. During the July 3rd meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, Director of Economic and Sustainable Development Alex Crowley presented a new electric scooter license application. What you have in front of you is an updated scooter application. Uh, as you may recall, operators need to submit an application, which they do, and then we bring back to the Board of Public Works for your review and approval. The uh, application document that existed previously did not include some of the recommendations that we uh, brought to you back in April. So the document, thanks to um, Alex Pratt and the legal department, has been updated to reflect those recommendations. And also, at the last minute, thanks to Alex again, uh, updated to reflect some of the uh, suggestions you had earlier today. So what you have in front of you is what we would like to release to operators, any operator interested in um, providing service and, and operating in Bloomington. The timing would be that we would release it with your approval uh, uh, immediately and then give them an opportunity to submit their applications and bring those applications back to you by the end of July so that all of this could be effective um, beginning in August. So this is the application uh, document. Um, it um, incorporates a bunch of the changes. You'll see those added in to section 10 of the document. And we are also uh, working in the background to facilitate some of the parking issues uh, or solutions that we'd like to implement also in the same time frame, including parking corrals, geofencing, and some of the other uh, rules that they will be now uh, working within. So just to remind you, two primary issues that we've been concerned with, uh, safety of, of riders and pedestrians. So safety generally, but in particular of riders and pedestrians, and then separately um, uh, parking generally and, and, and the mess uh, that we've, we've seen from time to time as a result of the scooters. During public comment, local resident Chuck Livingston said he'd witnessed electric scooters blocking sidewalks. He showed a series of photos he took documenting the obstructions. Every photograph you have seen represents a violation of the ordinance that the administration insisted that the council pass four years ago. It was written by the administration. It was approved by the council. A city attorney, Mike Rooker, promised that he would be fining each and every violation. Um, we've seen no enforcement at all. So may, writing a new license with new conditions will do nothing without a commitment to enforce the ordinance. Talking about corrals, talking about geofencing, talking about education is all fine, but 
everyone knows that if this is not enforced, um, it, we will continue to live under what we've been forced to live under for five years. Thank you for your time. Crowley responded to public comments saying geofencing could assist in preventing residents from parking in incorrect locations. So geofencing in its own, yeah, as a technology, um, is just geofencing. But, um, and in fact, some of this has already been implemented, which is if you attempt to end your ride in an area that is not sanctioned, um, you cannot end your ride. And so what happens, this, uh, I rode a scooter several weeks ago and I was trying to park in a certain part of uh, near the library and it wouldn't allow me to park there. And it, it uh, told me to go find an allowable parking spot. And so what that required me to do was, was to find that spot. And when I did, I could then end my ride. So there are gonna be some practical benefits to geofencing that allow for um, most people to uh, be encouraged and incentivized to, to park in the in the right place. Um, the other thing that I should mention is that um, since uh, October of last year, we have been implementing, and by we I mean really the, the uh, uh, Department of Public Works have been implementing an enforcement um, uh, uh, staff to go into highly congested areas and document up until now only uh, the violations capture those. We have reports um, and our intention is to in fact uh, use those uh, documentations to um, begin to um, impact the operators. So, so uh, apply fines to the operators to, to um, make sure that they are encouraging their riders to leave scooters in the appropriate place at the end of the ride. Mr. Livingston's right, the, when I saw the, the parking of scooters in People's Park, that is actually an, an issue with the ride, uh, with the operator and their placement of scooters. Clearly that's not a group of people who just happen to park their scooters next to each other. I think in every other instance, it's really the end user, the rider who is parking the scooter incorrectly or potentially correctly, but then it falls over. So in, you know that, that's where the manpower to go and, and uh, document and then turn around and uh, penalize the, the operators will, will be helpful. Vice President of the Board, Elizabeth Karen, asked whether this enforcement procedure is a new addition within the proposed license application. Board Secretary Jennifer Lloyd inquired on the timeline of the enforcement, and Crowley responded to both requests for clarification. Is that a new addition that has not been happening up until now that the operators are not being fined for the improper parking of their scooters? That's correct. We have not uh, yet done that. Um, but we've also discussed with them and warned them that that, that uh, will be changing. Do we have a date that that's going to start? That enforcement and fining is going to start? Yeah, we are aiming all of these uh, implementations uh, to be right around the beginning of August so to catch you know, the, the uh, pre-student arrival moment and then apply it during the arrival and through the fall into the spring. Could we have a report at the September meeting as to how uh, enforcement is going and what's been happening in the world of fines and penalties? Yeah, it might be easier, but well, certainly happy to, to bring it to you because of the uh, administrative burden of, of fining. We were thinking that we would probably end up doing so monthly. And so um, we can certainly speak to the issuance of uh, fines in, in the September time 
period because we will have presumably been capturing any kind of violations during the month of August. I'm not sure that we can speak to the full resolution of those fines at that time because uh, we will have just issued the fines. Yeah, that's fine. I'm, I'm interested in finding out what, uh, what's been set in, in, in motion, um, and then we can have later follow-ups as we go along. The board approved the license application unanimously. The Bloomington Board of Public Works will meet again on Tuesday, July 18th. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a wrap-up of the primary election and looks forward to November for the general election in the city of Bloomington. This column is a collaboration between WFHB, the B-Square Bulletin, and Bloom Magazine. We turn to Askins for more. Bloomington Inside Baseball. In early May, Carrie Thompson prevailed over Susan Sandberg and Don Griffin in a three-way race for the Democratic Party's nomination for Bloomington mayor. Incumbent Democrat John Hamilton did not seek re-election. Theoretically, a Republican candidate could be placed on the ballot between now and early July, or by the end of June, an independent candidate could collect the 352 signatures that are required to qualify for the ballot. But even if there's a race in November, given Bloomington's political climate, Thompson will likely be the next mayor of Bloomington. Still, it's not 100% certain. On election night, after the results were in, Thompson avoided a stumble by giving a nod to the lingering uncertainty. Quote, I'm very much looking forward, should I be elected, to leading this community and to partnering with everyone, she said. Thompson also recognized her two opponents, now teammates. Quote, I am really grateful to both Susan and Don for the races that they ran. That made me better, and I think improved how we envision our community, end quote. Thompson's remarks were more like a routine base hit than a political home run. They showed a mastery of fundamentals. You stand in the box, swing the bat, make contact with the ball, put it in play, and run hard to first base. That's what your teammates expect. On election night, Don Griffin also rose to the expectations of his Democratic Party team when he said, quote, I want to thank my competitors, wonderful, great competitors, Kerry, congratulations, Susan, great race, and I really enjoyed this, end quote. Thompson talked a bit about teamwork, quote, I want to say to each of you that I am looking forward to being on your team, not an accessory to your team, not a boss, nothing else. I want to be on your team. I want to lead together, end quote. Her remarks reminded me of an adage that Bloomington Councilmember Jim Sims will sometimes quote, teamwork makes the dream work. At the start of 2021, after he was elected city council president by his colleagues, Sims quoted Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one person can be a crucial ingredient on a team, but one person cannot make a team. Sims won't be a part of the 2024 city council team because he chose this year not to seek re-election to his at-large seat. For the last four years, I have watched the Bloomington City Council as close as anybody. And objectively speaking, even if Sims cannot make a whole team by himself, there are three letters that fairly describe his role among the current nine council members, MVP. 
For the city council newcomers who won their primary and for Thompson and shoot for anyone else who wants to learn some political baseball, here's some advice. Through the end of this year, consider it a crucial part of your training to watch Sims and the rest of the council in action. Show up to the council's meetings and watch. But here's one caveat. Democracy is not just a spectator sport. Troy Crow is the volunteer coordinator at Beacon, the anti-poverty organization that runs the Shalom Center Day Shelter. Beacon is now the largest housing provider of any nonprofit in Monroe County. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing Get connected at bloomington.in.gov. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. Encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I am Tori Crow from Beacon Inc. Beacon is an organization that works with the homeless and low income in our community. We have multiple programs that work with people on all levels of poverty. We have permanent supportive housing, we have an overnight shelter, and we have a day shelter. So most people know us for our day shelter, which is the Shalom Community Center on South Walnut and we are able to offer people things that they just wouldn't be able to access any other way. Something as simple as taking a shower or getting their laundry done. And it is a way to give people who have nowhere to go a sense of home and a sense of place, a sense of purpose. One of the main things, especially in our community, is the rising cost of housing. It is incredibly expensive to get an apartment. And if someone has credit that is at all low, if they have any sort of criminal history, if they don't have first months, last months, and a security deposit, there's no way that we can house them. One of the big things that we notice too is when people don't have a home base, when they don't have a phone that's reliable, that doesn't get stolen, they don't have access to the things that we absolutely take for granted. They don't have access to mental health care. They don't have access to prescriptions. They don't have access to the very small things that we absolutely take for granted. This speaks to me like this. I this matches my personality like this matches who I am. You know, I love working with this population because they respect real and I would prefer to talk about the real stuff, like gritty stuff, things that people don't want to talk about at the dinner table. I have no problem doing that. And so, and I'm also very open about some of my own struggles. And it just, it was a population that I clicked with. I can be myself. I can absolutely be myself. But it is very hard because you deal with a lot of loss, either through people passing or people being incarcerated or people moving. And even if it's a happy thing, you know, if, if they're no longer coming into the center, you miss them. Um, but it is absolutely, it is my favorite social services job that I've ever had. I, I found my place. The majority of the volunteers that I talk to say that volunteering with Beacon has changed them for the better. 
and volunteering is an absolute direct way to see the good that someone is doing. We could not function without our volunteers. We have so few people on paid staff and we have around 120 volunteers on average. In the summer that drops, we need people. We need people to come in and work a two hour shift once a week. We always need people to drop off donations. We especially right now need men's and women's clothing larger sizes. Um, seasonally appropriate items are requested. And if someone is not able to help in any of those ways, we will always take cash donations um, because that money can go to purchase supplies and, and things that we need as an organization to keep doing what we're doing. But volunteering, absolutely, that is the best way to be face-to-face -face with a population that most people never get to experience. And rethink how you think about people that are homeless. Rethink what your stereotypes are about people that are homeless. And then you can completely destroy those stereotypes when you come volunteer with us. It's life-changing. If people are interested, we would love to have you. Beaconinc.org has a link. There is a section that says how you can help. If you click on that, it says volunteer and near the bottom of the page, there's a link that will take you to an application. That application gets sent directly to me. I reach out, we have an orientation and we get people going. And that's at beaconinc.org. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tori Crow. I'm the volunteer coordinator for Beacon Inc. And we are actively working for solutions for people in poverty. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.